You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be speaking with hematologist Dr. Shella St. Florilomini from NYU Langone Health in New York, New York. Dr. St. Florilomini is a physician scientist. Her medical school training was a combined MD and PhD training program. Her postgraduate training included a research track residency and fellowship, and she is now triple board certified in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology. She is currently studying the biology of leukemia with the goal of finding pathways important for better treatment outcomes. Welcome, Dr. St. Floor Lamini. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Now, before we jump into the topic of this episode, which is acute lymphoblastic leukemia known as ALL, we always like to get an idea of who the speaker is. So what brought you to the field of medicine? So I can say I grew up with the idea of going into medicine. I am an immigrant. I came from Haiti. And when I was growing up, I used to see the dire situation of people who are sick and we don't have enough human resources. And I wanted to be part of the solution. I wanted to become a doctor. So from very early on in my childhood, that wasn't my idea. Then my uh, family immigrated to the United States and I came right after I finished my high school. So I still had the very strong desire to go into medicine and I uh, went to college with the idea of being a pre-med. And when I started, I also kind of fell in love with research because I find like, oh, when you are a medical doctor, you are taking care of patients, your impact is limited to the patient that you have in front of you. But when you are doing research, you can actually impact medicine in a more impactful way. So I started doing research and I, that's how I decided instead of just going to for medical school to be an MD, I want to do an MD PhD. So that's what kind of brought me into Philadelphia right now. That is awesome. And that's such a great, I guess, outlook on research versus MD. That was a great way to put both together. So doctor, jumping into ALL, how does leukemia develop specifically acute lymphoblastic leukemia? So acute lymphoblastic leukemia, it's a disease that comes from the lymphoid cells. So in our immune system, we have different subtypes of white blood cells. And those white blood cells, they're what we call lymphocytes, and then those we call the myeloid cells. And from the lymphoid, we have two subtypes. We have the B and the T, and they go through different stages of development before they become mature cells that are capable of doing the work of protecting us against infection. Because uh, both B and T cells are important to fight infection, and they are part of what's called adaptive immune system. 
So during development, if there is something faulty in the genetic makeup of the cells during while they are dividing or differentiating, then the differentiation of the cells kind of become arrested. It doesn't proceed to go to the next step. Then those immature cells that are not able to proceed further, they accumulate and they start multiplying and making more of themselves. That's what become what we call acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And because we have in the lymphoid, the normal cells are B or T, the same way for the acute lymphoblastic leukemia, we can have a B cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and we can also have a T type as well. And in the United States, the B cell type is more blunt? Yeah, it's more common. Um, the B cell is more common. So it's about 70% of them are the B type and then the rest are of the T type. The distribution between um, kids and adults is slightly different, but the B is more common in both groups, actually. And do we know why these cells become abnormal? When cells are being made, the B cell or the T cells, they have a lot of genetic changes that happen in order for them to have acquired diversity and to be able to respond to a lot of antigens, to be able to respond to a lot of parts of microbes. So because of that, professionally, they are cells that divide a lot and they are also cells that change a lot in the genetic makeup. And errors happen during those changes. And if an error happens and then there is part of chromosomes that are exchanged and then you have a gene that normally should be under very strict control and now it goes next to another gene where like the control of that gene is that it should be expressed all the time. And then the gene that was supposed to be under strict control and, and expressed at a very specific time, now it starts being expressed all the time because it kind of changed space, um, location. And by that change, it become under control of some another thing that we call promoter. So it has a different promoter that's controlling it. And it starts uh, producing all the time and then it can change the behavior of the cell. So either the cell proliferate more or either the cell doesn't continue with its differentiation or the cell doesn't die when it's supposed to die. So a lot of these changes that happen in the signal of the cell that make it not behave the way it's supposed to behave and the accumulation of those cells become cancer. Okay, now jumping into tests and examinations, what are a few of those that would be used to detect and diagnose adult ALL? So in terms of tests, when people present with ALL, sometimes they present with abnormalities in the blood count, and they may present with symptoms of fever that or other symptoms like night sweats and things like that. And when they present with those symptoms, some of the tests may include blood count and also when you do the blood count and you find either the white blood cell count is too high and you're seeing cells that you're not supposed to see that we call blasts because blasts are immature form of cells and they're supposed to be in the bone marrow and you see them in the blood that prompted more testing and some of those testing include doing something called flow cytometry and the flow cytometry is when you take those cells and you stain them with specific uh, antibodies to see what exactly they express and also what type of cells that they are. So the flow cytometry will tell you whether it is a leukemia, if it's an acute leukemia versus an chronic leukemia, and if it's an acute leukemia, whether it's AML, whether it's ALL, and if it's ALL, whether it's B or a T, because there are certain specific markers that those cells are stand for. So that's the diagnostic part. And then 
we also do some genetic testing looking at chromosomal abnormalities to see if there is any exchange of chromosome piece between two different chromosomes. Some of those exchanges will put the patient in a classification as a very high risk versus others will put the patient in a low risk. Sometimes you see also mutation of genes, like you do some PCR, like to look for changes in genes, and those help you subclassify the patients. For TALL, because a good subset of them present as a lymphoma instead of a leukemia, so imaging, doing CT scan or PET scan is also part of the diagnostic testing. And then in male, you also do a testicular exam because ALL also can involve the testes. So that's part of the diagnostic test. And then for all patients, you're also going to be doing what's called a lumbar puncture, again, to not only to analyze the cerebrospinal fluid for involvement by the leukemia, but also to administer chemotherapy in that space to prevent the leukemic cell from going there. Now, you mentioned fever being one of the most common symptoms. What are other signs and symptoms of ALL? So other symptoms have to do with abnormalities in the blood. Because when you have leukemia, when the leukemic cells accumulate in the bone marrow, they prevent normal hematopoiesis, normal forming of blood. Some of the things that will be manifested in the patient is that patient may develop anemia, and they will have symptoms of anemia like fatigue, uh, feeling kind of very, like, you know, headache and sometimes shortness of breath because they don't have a very good capacity to carry oxygen because of the anemia. Other symptoms that may happen is you can see bruising, you can see bleeding because the platelet count drop because they lose the capacity to make uh, platelet because of the accumulation of the blast and the bone marrow occupying the space. Another symptom may include infection because also when you are occupying the bone marrow space and you're not making neutrophils like the good white blood cell that you need to fight infection, so you're more susceptible to having bacterial infection. But you also have fever for non-infectious reason because cytokines like as production by the leukemia cells as they are developing and releasing cytokines. So those also will cause you to have fever. You can have night sweat. Patients can present with um, big spleen, big liver because of the accumulation of the lymphoblasts in those organs. And they also can have lymphadenopathy, like lymph nodes that are growing different places in the body. You can feel them in the neck, under the arm, in the brain area. So how is ALL treated? We have a very complex regimen where we use chemotherapy that target different parts of a cell some involved with like inhibiting DNA synthesis, some involved inhibiting like uh, protein synthesis, and we have others that have to do with cytoplasmic process that are involved in cell division, like vincristine. So we have a combination of chemotherapy that we use, and then also we use steroid. And the different phases, the first phase of treatment is called induction, and the induction treatment is for about four weeks. And at the end of induction, the majority of patients are in remission. Then after induction, then you have uh, multiple different phases of consolidation or intensification treatment that also takes several months, and they are very intense, a combination of different types of chemotherapy and different dosage, and that also involves in doing chemo not only IV, some chemo by mouth, and also some chemo in the CSF directly by what we call intratecal chemotherapy. 
and then after we complete those phases we go into a, something called maintenance phase and the maintenance phase is a combination of three different chemotherapy that again target different um, aspects of cellular processes and with the maintenance therapy the patient is on it could be for about a year and a half or to two years from the time they finish consolidation basically and with that regimen the majority of pediatric patients are cured but for adult the cure rate is much lower and the older you are the lower is the cure rate so if you take someone who's in their 30s versus someone who's in their 60s the cure rate is much different so in addition to age what other factors affect prognosis and treatment options looking at the genetic background of the disease, the gross chromosomal changes, as well as the small gene changes. For example, I think one gene that most people who know about leukemia have heard about is something called Philadelphia or BCR-ABO, which is a neogene, and it's part of the Philadelphia chromosome. So the BCR-ABO gene, which is something that derived from two pieces of that come from two different chromosomes coming together and that brought the BCR part and the ABO part together. They're supposed to exist at different places, but they brought together. One is from chromosome 9 and one is from chromosome 22. And these actually are considered to be high-risk ALL. If you have that change, it's considered high-risk. And beside the chemotherapy, those patients are also treated with a targeted treatment, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Uh, before we had imatinib, now we have the satinib, we have the latinib, we have ponatinib. So we have different uh, generation of uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor that is incorporated into the backbone of the chemotherapy for those patients. So that affects prognosis. And whereas for pediatric patients with the pH positive who are treated with the TKI together with the chemotherapy, even though it's still considered a lower, like lower prognostic group or a higher risk group than people who don't have it, they typically do not go straight into transplant if they get into remission on time and they stay into remission. For adult patients, currently most patients who have these changes, uh, because their prognosis are lower to begin with, they go into transplant. So they have an allogenic transplant at the end of once they get into remission. When is it appropriate and who is appropriate for? Because not all patients get transplants, correct? Yeah, not all patients. For adult patients, it's the high-risk group, and that's determined at the time of diagnosis when you do those genetic um, studies. And also at the end of uh, induction, for those people who don't go into remission, so those are what we call refractory disease. And so they go with second-line treatment. Those patients also will go into transplant. And then patients who relapse after treatment, so those patients are those who go to transplant. And I know that there's a lot of newer treatments that are emerging now, especially with immunotherapies and targeted therapy for patients. Is that something that in the future will take over for transplant or are people still going to go for transplants? People are still going to transplant because with immunotherapy, we are able to put a lot of um, relapse or refractory patients into remission. But for the most part, the studies we have so far, what we are seeing is that those patients do not stay in remission for long. 
So that's why those patients, after they get into remission, after the immunotherapy, they typically go to transplant because they're not staying in remission for long. There's a lot of side effects for transplant. Do patients usually do well after transplant? So yes, there are side effects, but it's a risk-benefit balance. The benefit is that those patients we send to transplant are those we know that that's their best chance of staying in remission. And in terms of side effects of transplant, I'm not a transplanter, I should say that up front, but I know we are doing better and better with transplant. There was used to be a lot of peritransplant mortality because of complication patients develop during the transplant or immediately after the transplant. But now we have better supportive care and we can get people to the transplant more successfully. Now, things that can happen even much later is what we call versus host disease. Because when you do the transplant, you're using somebody else's immune system to fight the leukemia and keep the leukemia into remission. But a side effect of that is that that other person's immune system can also attack other organs in that host, in that patient. And those organs typically are the skin, the gastrointestinal system, the liver. And some of those side effects can be very morbid. They can cause a lot of symptoms and even death sometimes. But again, with better treatment now and with more research, so there is like better ability to kind of control the immune system and, and prevent the what we call GVHG, graft versus host disease. And it's a balance because you want to make sure that while you are suppressing that immune system so that it doesn't cause side effects of the patient, you don't suppress it too low that you actually lose the graft versus leukemia effect. You want to keep the important graft versus leukemia effect without having too much graft versus host disease. There's a term or a therapy that everyone pretty much has heard of in the last few years, and that is CAR T-cell therapy, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. What is that and how is it proving to be successful for ALL patients? It's been very successful in putting relapsed and refractory patients into remission. Mm-hmm. So what it is, is it's, it's actually for BALL because we are nesting the T cells of the patient, the normal T cell of the patient, that the B lymphoblast. And so basically those patients who relapse, they collect their T cells and those T cells are engineered to have a new receptor to recognize a marker on the lymphoblast. And that marker, the one we're using right now is CD19 because all those B lymphoblasts express CD19. And we also be able to use the same CAR T cell to attack B cell lymphoma because they also express CD19. And so those T cells are engineered to be able to recognize those markers on the B lymphoblast and they can go and kind of kill those lymphoblasts and put the patient into remission. It's so exciting hearing about something like that. I'm, I'm sure as a researcher, you are thrilled and super excited because so many people are benefiting from it. Like you said, remission rates, unprecedented remission rates for adults and pediatric patients with relapsed and refractory B-cell, ALL. It's a hopeful option for so many, and I can only imagine how exciting that is for researchers to see. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and beside the CAR T-cell, 
with this very similar idea, we have antibody called linatumumab, which is a bispecific antibody. And because the CAR T cell, you have to engineer it for the specific patient, collect it from the patient, and then give the patient back the T cell. Whereas for the blinaturumab is something that's off the shelf, you can take and then treat the patient. And the blinaturumab still harness the patient T cell, but it's the antibody that you give. The antibody have two things on it, like a, it binds to the T cell via an anti-CD3, because the T cell express CD3, and it also has the anti-CD19 point. So it's kind of take the patient T cell and bring them into contact to the lymphoblast. But it's not that you engineer the T cell outside, it's just putting the antibody in that allow the two to come into contact inside the patient body. And with CAR T cells, there are, of course, toxicities. I mean, it's a great thing, but it also comes with its risks. And those can include cytokine release syndrome, B cell aplasia, cerebral edema. What toxicities may occur for someone who may undergo this type of therapy? So the cytokine release syndrome is actually the biggest one that we have seen. And it's actually a lot of those patients end up going to the ICU to be closely monitored because this is a very terrible side effect, uh, especially if it's um, high grade. Usually when it's starting, depending on where the patient is with the treatment. So there are things that you can do to kind of taper it a little bit to bring it down, but not all patients will respond to those uh, approaches. So you can see that it can progress to very high grade. And you mentioned the cerebral edema. And also there are people who don't even develop cerebral edema, but for some reason that we see that they, be, they develop uh, altered mental status. So they have this uh, CNS toxicity, but you can't really find a specific thing that causing it. It could be part of the cytokine also, but this is something we see uh, even in patients who don't have CNS involvement of uh, CNS involvement of disease. So, Doctor, for CAR T therapy, the pediatric ALL CAR T therapy right now is approved. Do you know when and if there would be an adult CAR T therapy approved by the FDA? I know it's approved for people less than twenty-five, so young adult can actually get it. And I suspect that one of the reasons we don't have it in adults yet is because of the side effects as well. And adult patients have a harder time tolerating certain treatment because of other comorbidities. I don't know when we may have one. And what treatments are you most excited about at this point in time? So at this point, the immunotherapy I'm very excited about, not only the blinotrimumab or the CAR-T, but also we have inotuzumab, which is another targeted therapy, even though and targeted therapy, because it's an antibody targeting therapy that have a chemotherapy drug attached to it. And it's for those BLL that express CD22. And again, for all those things that I mentioned, either blinotrimumab, CAR-T, or inotuzumab, for those patients who are, have been heavily pretreated, we see a higher proportion of patients going into remission compared to chemotherapy. The one thing about the inotuzumab is that we tend not to do it if the patient is expected to go straight into transplant because there is also some toxicity associated with it and that can get worse during transplant. Thank you for explaining that. The target audience for this podcast are patients, the caregivers, and you know many friends and family of those who they know diagnosed with a blood cancer. Are there any common questions that you get from patients that our listeners would benefit from hearing your answer to? Actually, one of the most common questions I get is, is this something that I did that causes disease? 
and it's not just for leukemia but for other cancers because a lot of time patients are trying to find answers why i have this disease this is something that i ate this is something you know some kind of behavior thing that contribute to it i just want to make sure you know patients are really reassured that it's not something they did for the most part we don't know those are errors of nature and as i explained with those chromosomal changes or changing some genes that happen and that kind of make the cells behave abnormally and they accumulate and then cause the cancer so it's not something that they they have done other things that i have heard is like is there something i can eat that can help make the disease better and patients typically ask about if there is any specific multi uh, vitamin that they can take that can help them while they're doing the chemotherapy again we do not have evidence that those help and I usually discourage patients to take multivitamins while they're doing uh, curative intent chemotherapy uh, because we don't have evidence that they help. And in, in some cancers, we actually do have evidence that they can hurt, especially in breast cancer, like because some of those vitamins are antioxidants. So it seems that they interact with the way the chemotherapy affects the cancer cell. And there have been studies showing that people who are taking certain vitamins during chemotherapy do worse than those who are not taking. So I usually discourage patients. Unless you are really treating a deficiency, I encourage patients not to take those during curative and chemotherapy. When a patient is sitting with you and they are newly diagnosed and unfortunately they're given the news that they have this diagnosis and they say, doctor, where can I find more resources? Where do you guide people to for resources about their disease that they can then later read about once they leave your office? I usually send them to the websites of the, um, either LLS or American Cancer Society. Sometimes we have some brochures also in our exam room that we share with patients. We also refer them to the support group. Doctor, is there any additional info that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think we've covered the major part. I mean, there are a lot of research being done. The T cell, most of what we talk about today covered the B cell part. The T cell is still kind of lagging behind because, especially for the immunotherapy, we do not have much for the T cell right now. We have had trials uh, looking at some targeted therapy for specific genes that are commonly mutated in TALL, but so far nothing had gone far enough to be approved and kind of help with the relapse refractory TLL because there is one gene that's called NACH1 which is commonly mutated in the TLL and there have been a lot of effort trying to target that but so far we haven't been that successful clinically and research is look promising but then clinically haven't been that successful so I feel there is a lot of room for uh, improvement and that's why a lot of us is like devoting a lot of time in the lab trying to study more the biology of the disease. And currently, what I do in the lab is looking at epigenetic um, markers that can explain some certain changes in the gene expression in those leukemic blasts and to see whether we can target those to help them render the cells more sensitive to chemotherapy. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode, doctor, and for everything that you continue to do for cancer patients. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and we're thrilled to share this episode with our listeners. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.